We're back in our series in 1 Kings, and we're here. It's an incredibly famous, dramatic story in the Old Testament, one of the ones that you remember from Sunday school if you grew up in the church, and Esther did a great job reading it for us. It's an inspirational story of one man standing for God against 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, against the king Ahab, against the queen Jezebel, against all odds, one man standing there. And if that's inspirational, I think we need to start out today by just being honest with ourselves that not many of us are anything like Elijah. Um, it doesn't take odds of 850 to 1 for us to hedge our bets, to waffle a little bit in our faith in God. Even a ratio of 1 to 1 is enough for most of us, including me sometimes, uh, to not be faithful. I don't even necessarily need odds. I can just be unfaithful in my own heart to the Lord. And so this is a story here for us uh, that we need to take account with. I think about my life growing up in the church. I learned really early on. I grew up in the South. I grew up, you know, knowing how to, how to act as a Christian. Uh, I knew, you know, what to do in church. I knew how to pray. I learned how to pray. I learned how to be in a small group. I learned how to lead a small group. I learned how to give some of my money to the church. Um, I also learned how to compartmentalize that part of my life and to have whole areas of my life, whole rooms in the house of my life that I wasn't really uh, walking with the Lord. And so God, by his grace, uh, showed up on my doorstep. He really, he shook me up at one point in my life and helped me realize that living as one who, as it says here in verse 21 and 22, who was limping between two opinions about God was just not the way to live. There's an English pastor back in the year 1740. His name was William Grimshaw. And he had received news over and over again of this couple in his church that were leaders in his church. And he just began hearing over and over these terrible reports about how they were actually acting toward other people that lived as their neighbors. And it got to the point where he had heard so many stories of people in his church that he decided he needed need to do something drastic to figure it out because he recognized that when these people were, these, this couple was around him, they acted one way. And, and so he wanted to uh, concoct a plan to figure out what was really true. And so he dressed up like a beggar. And he dressed up like a beggar, and he went to their house and knocked on their door. And he began to beg for food, telling them that he was starving. And they treated him terribly. And so he, he, he thought, well, maybe I'm just a bad actor. And so he really went for it. I mean, he really went for it. He told them he was going to starve in the night. It was a cold night. He had nowhere to receive shelter, and he really needed their help. And they treated him even worse. And so Grimshaw took off his disguise on their front doorstep, and the couple was left speechless. And he told them about the God of the gospel who forgives even hypocrites but calls them to repentance. What we find here in this story is Elijah showing up on the front doorstep of Israel. They're not expecting him. They have no idea that he's coming. But when he comes... And he calls them to account. 
And he says in verse 21 and 22, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Today, if you choose God, serve him. But if you choose Baal, serve him. And what does it say? The silence was deafening. They had nothing to say because it had been so long that they actually thought that they needed to make a decision. Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow idols? They, for the longest time, had never thought they needed to make that, that kind of a discerning decision. But Elijah calls them to account. But they did not answer him a word. When we are stuck limping between two opinions, what we need is a fresh encounter with the living God. A fresh encounter with the living God to show us that he is God, he is the true and living God, and that our idols are worthless. So when we're stuck in that place of hypocrisy, what we need is that encounter with God that will show us who he truly is again so that we'll leave our idols behind and follow him. That's where we're going today. First of all, let's talk about what it looks like to limp between two opinions about God. So in Israel, you could find a lot of people who believed in Yahweh. They believed in Yahweh, they prayed to Yahweh, they gave money to Yahweh, they went to temple. That belief in Yahweh and worship of Yahweh was not the problem. The problem was that they didn't only worship Yahweh, they didn't only worship God, they worshiped a lot of gods. They followed the philosophy of the 20th century cultural icon Marilyn Monroe, who was famously quoted by saying, she believed in everything just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of everything. Just a little bit of God, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Asherah, a little bit of whatever they could find out there in society that they could sort of blend together to form their own personal religion. Now, why was Baal so popular with the people of Israel at the time? Here's four reasons. Baal worship was encouraged by your political and cultural authorities. Baal worship was encouraged. And so you had the king and the queen, and they were devoting large sums of money. They had a cultural program. They had hired 850 prophets who were living large. One of those prophets was in your town, and they were telling you how to live. And so there was a cost culturally to not follow the way of Baal at the time. Second, Baal worship was the most popular religion in your neighborhood. Most people were not monotheistic anymore. Most people were pluralistic. And so for you to follow after Yahweh made you an outlier. And people began to brand you as, uh, as not really uh, understanding the times. Um, maybe even a little bit dangerous because you're not all affirming in the way that you understand religion. The third reason... Baal worship was popular because it focused on meeting your felt needs. Baal was concerned about the economy. He cared a lot about you being well-fed. He was the god of rain and thunder. And he was the god of agriculture. And agriculture powered everything at the time. Baal was for the economy doing well. It's all about the economy for Baal. He also cared about your family desires. Asherah, another god that was incorporated in, was a, a fertility goddess. And so Baal cared about your money and he cared about your kids. He's a good god. 
Baal also forth appealed to your sensuality. Last but not least, Baal cared that you were sexually satisfied. If you're having trouble at home with your wife, there are some temple prostitutes waiting for you at the temple of Baal. Now sex outside of marriage is not a sign of faithfulness to God. Sex outside of marriage can even be an act of worship. Baal really, at the end of the day, just wants you to be happy. And so he had some powerful things going for him, or what people thought was the case. Now this sounds eerily like the idols of our culture, does it not? The allure of cultural power, of human approval, of our felt needs being met, of sensual gratification. It's all very enticing, and it's all as old as Baal, or even older. It all goes even farther back than that. All the false gods promise the same things, and they leave us with nothing. This way of living is ultra common in carry and in the triangle in general. For Christians, for churchgoers to have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of God worship, a little bit of worship of other things, it's extremely common. The problem, of course, with this is that it's not okay with God. It's not consistent with the Bible in any way. Taking God to Smoothie King and blending him up with other gods so that you get what you want is not what God is about. Exodus 23, Yahweh speaking, you shall have no other gods before me. Matthew 4.10, Jesus speaking, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 6.24, again Jesus speaking, no man can serve two masters. Galatians 1.10, Paul speaking, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If we needed more clarification, C.S. Lewis put it this way, God will either be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all. And so Elijah is right, and William Grimshaw is right. It's right for us to be called to account when we're those who so frequently limp between these two different opinions about God. Now this picture of Limping between two opinions is the, the idea of someone on crutches, uneven crutches. If you're, on, if you're on crutches at all, it's difficult. If you're on uneven crutches, it's almost impossible. You possibly could risk even greater injury. And maybe a modern-day analogy, if, if this was written to us right now in 2022, would be it'd be like having a, a pair of, of brand-new hokas or on clouds on one foot and a ski boot on the other. And that's how you're trying to live the Christian life. You are woefully ineffective. You're bound to injure yourself and probably to injure others in the process. And God is saying, how long are you going to wear that ski boot on one of your feet? How long are you going to limp around? There's also this picture of the, the uh, idolaters, these, these priests of Baal, as they're going around the altar. The same word is used, limping around the altar. When we worship other gods along with God, we limp throughout our Christian lives. And God is calling us and saying, I want you to turn to me. So what do we need to happen in our hearts in order for us to, to be freed up, to repent of our idolatry, in order to really worship the true and living God alone? Well, we need a fresh encounter with God. And who he is. And what we find here in 1 Kings 18 is we find a powerful expression of who God is. 
And so to, to get at that, to have this fresh encounter with the Lord by God's grace, I pray His Spirit will work as we look, first of all, at four things that we can learn about God that, he is, that are not true of Him. The, four things that are not true of God in this passage, that God is not like. You can often find a lot out about a person by what they say no to, what is not true of them. And then you can also find things that are true of God, and we'll, we'll find out at the end, four things that are true of God. Four, four things that we can see in God's character that are true of him in the passage. But let's start out with what God, or who God, is not. Who God is not. Our God is a God who is not intimidated by hard-to-reach places. By hard-to-reach places. Now, the setting of this battle of the gods is the summit of Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel sits just to the north of modern-day Haifa, which is the main port in Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, just north of there. Mount Carmel is the tallest mountain in the region. From Mount Carmel, you can look out. If you look out to the west, you see the Mediterranean Sea. If you look out to the east, you see the Jordan River. If you look to the south, you, you see the Valley of Jezreel. If you look to the north, you see modern-day Syria. Mount Carmel sits in this place, which in that day is really basically a part of Syria, just to the south of there, this is Baal country. This is Baal's backyard. Long ago, Yahweh was worshipped on Mount Carmel, but all the, all the altars had been torn down, and all the Baal altars had been built up, and this was a mountain that had been dedicated to Baal. If you've ever traveled to an area of Asia where they have the prayer flags up for Buddha, like Tibet or somewhere like that, there would have been prayer flags all over the place for Baal on Mount Carmel. This was Baal's backyard. Not only that, Baal is the god of lightning. Baal is the god of rain. To have a contest, this sort of ultimate contest, so to speak, between Baal and Yahweh, and to have it on the peak of a mountain in Baal country, basically, Elijah is saying, let's do this on your home field. You bring all your fans. Let's do this in a place where Baal, if he's real, this is a place where, of all places, Baal should be able to show up. So let's do it there. But of course, Elijah knows that there are no hard-to-reach places for God. God created the world. Baal's not even real. Baal only exists in the minds of men and women. He only exists because the systems of this world tell us that he's real. But Yahweh is real. There are no hard-to-reach places for him. When we talk about missions, we often talk about reached and unreached places. And there's nothing wrong with that terminology. But when we use that terminology, we need to understand that those are only terms that are true for us from our own human perspective. From God's perspective, there are no hard-to-reach places in the world. There are no places in the world that are harder for him to reach than any other place. When we say hard to reach, we mean the gospel has not yet gone there. Or we Westerners find it very difficult to go live in a place like that. Or the systems of a religion are already set up there. But for God, that is not a hard to reach place. God can immediately at any time change the hearts of men and women in those places. And so we should be even more bold as we read this. God is not intimidated by certain people or certain areas of the world. We should be even more bold in global missions to follow him there, to take the gospel to those places. The second thing we find out about God is he's, 
a God who is not impressed by numbers or popularity. From a human calculation, the, the odds are at least 850 to 1, but it's actually worse because you have Ahab and Jezebel and all these other people who are there who can't make a decision. I mean, the odds are crazy. If this was a democracy, then God would have been voted out long ago, but it's not a democracy, it's a kingdom, and he's the king. He doesn't need our vote to be God. He doesn't need to be popular to be God. He's not changed. He's not discouraged by not being popular. You know, for us, as we look at our faith, as we relate to other people, sometimes we think, well, maybe God's not the one true God because he's not popular among so many people in our culture. Or maybe we still believe, but we think that somehow the lack of popularity from people in our culture somehow detracts from God in his essence. Like maybe God isn't really God. Maybe there are other gods too. But actually God doesn't care if he's popular or not. He doesn't care. It doesn't strike him at the fundamentals of his nature that people don't consider him to be cool or in vogue or culturally in the know. He doesn't care about that. He's still God. He's not impressed by numbers and popularity. And so when we think of the risk of standing out for God in our social circles, it's tempting to believe that because people don't think God is cool or popular, that maybe we should be a little bit less confident in our evangelism. But we need to anchor ourselves in who God is, that he is not impressed with human approval, even though we often are. The third thing we see about who God is not is he is a God who is not moved by religious self-effort. We see here that the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth prayed for a very long time, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. By midday, they start getting desperate. They get louder. They start chanting. They start cutting themselves. They start doing all these things. At this point, Elijah starts having a little bit of fun with them. He suggests that Baal could be sleeping, maybe He's had a long night. Maybe he was out partying really hard the night before. He could be in the bathroom. Maybe he has an upset tummy. Maybe he ate a lot of spicy food last night. Maybe he's just traveling. He's on a road trip. I mean, Baal likes to travel. And maybe he's just busy. I guess the universe is a big place, you know. And he's just kind of, at this point, just openly mocking them for what they're doing. I've seen this kind of idol worship. I mentioned Tibet earlier. I've been to Lhasa. And at one of the main temples in the city, it's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Every square inch of the ground is covered with people who are bowing down to literally a God that is shaped like a golden calf. And they're bowing down over and over again to the point where they're bleeding onto the ground. And there's no answer coming. There's no answer coming. For centuries and centuries and centuries to the point where the chanting goes on for so long that I believe it impacts people's mental health. People just aren't really fully there. They're doing this every day, day in and day out. It's very, very sad. And of course, Buddha and Lhasa and Baal aren't responding to the prayers of the people because the idols, though we've crafted them, they don't actually exist. They only exist what we have concocted in our own minds and hearts. We can learn something here about religious self-effort. Though these people are praying to Baal, though in Lhasa people are praying to Buddha, what they're really searching for is God. They're searching for God. 
And in their religious self-effort, they believe that by doing whatever it is that they're doing, to the, to the most that they possibly can, they can pray, they can chant, they can bow down, they can bleed. They believe that whoever God is, that certainly that must be the way that we could please God by our own self-effort, by our own good works. But the true God is unimpressed with our works. He's unimpressed with our religious self-effort. God doesn't care how many things you do for him. He doesn't care. That's not what moves the heart of God. What moves the heart of God is what Elijah does here, and we'll look at his prayer later. It's just simple faith in who he is. It's totally counterintuitive to us as human beings that all God requires of us is simply to trust him, simply to believe him. He is not moved by our self-effort. That's not the kind of God that he is. He's also a God, fourth, who is not deterred by extra difficult challenges. So Elijah digs a moat around the altar after he repairs it. He pours out four jars of water three different times to the point where he fills up this trench. The whole point is he's saying, I'm going to make this from your own human perspective about as impossible of a task. I mean, if fire falling from the sky wasn't hard enough. I'm going to drench this altar. I'm going to totally make it so full of water that, that, that only, if this happens, it can only be the case that God has showed up. He's speaking to us in this way. You can see in our minds, we have situations in our lives that we feel like are extra difficult situations. They're extra difficult. From our human perspective, they are. Um, a, a, a struggle with you know, Claire prayed about a lot of these things. The way that our marriages sometimes, we don't, we don't love and respect each other. Uh, with our children, some of the, the issues that they face that are so hard. Uh, sicknesses. Um, the, the losses we've experienced. These are, these, are extra, these are extra difficult challenges from our perspective. But from God's perspective, it is simply a challenge. There's, no, there's nothing extra difficult for this about God. Anything that is compared to infinity always rounds to zero. Anything. For you math people out there, I even know that much math. Um, But any challenge that we face, even if from our perspective, this seems like it's extra difficult, and it is, God is compassionate. We have to understand that for God, since he's omnipotent, there is nothing beyond the reach of God. Some of you have children, some of you have parents, some of you have friends, and you feel like that this is an extra difficult thing that God might change their life for them. We have people in our lives that we categorize as being extra difficult people, that this seems like it might even be beyond God's spectrum to be able to actually change their heart. But for God, there are no extra difficult people. There are just people whose hearts need to be changed by his grace. And it should fuel our faith, and it should change our prayers. It should change the way that we evangelize. If you have someone in your life that you love that does not know Christ, don't give up on them. Don't give up in prayer for them. Don't give up with opportunities in speaking to them if God gives you that opportunity. Trust the Lord. He is a God who does not face anything that's extra difficult. Nothing is extra difficult for him. It's simply a request that he can respond In this, when the fire does fall from the sky, God consumes the rocks. That's amazing to me. He doesn't just consume the water. He consumes the rocks. 
He can change any rock-hard person. He changed me. He changed you. He's a God who can consume the rocks. So that's who God is not. Well, let's encounter the living God by looking at who he is. Looking at who he is. First of all, we see here he's a God who is passionate for his own glory. He's a God who's passionate for his own glory. There's a part of God here at the core of his being that's really, really angry. He's angry that his people have turned away from him and are worshiping these false gods. He's doing this when he has Elijah show up on the scene. He's doing this for Israel. He's doing it for the people, but he's also doing it for himself. He's doing it for himself because he knows he's the true God. He's not a God who can live in a lie. He can't live like that. He knows he's the true God. He's jealous for our hearts that we would love him. He knows that the best thing for us is for him to be jealous for all glory and all worship because only in him, if we worship him, can we find the satisfaction that our souls were created for. And so God is a God who is passionate for his own glory. And when we hesitate to stand for God, this is always related to spiritual insecurity in our own lives. James 1 He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. How can we be as passionate for God's glory as God is passionate for his glory? Well, we need to pray, God, I pray that you would help me to not be insecure about who you are. I don't want to be unstable in my faith in you. I want to believe what you say about who you are so that I can stand for you no matter what challenges I face. We need to ask the Lord that we would find that voice of him in the crowds, that we would tune out the voice of the crowds, listen to the voice of the one, and find our identity in the Lord. The second thing we learn about who God is, is he's a God who is present when we are greatly outnumbered. He's a God who is present when we're greatly outnumbered. There's something about God in the core of who he is and has to do with his glory He loves it when we stand up for him. There's something about him that gets energized at the core of his being when his people, against all odds, stand for him. Think about Stephen in Acts 8. It's the only time we ever see a picture of Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the throne of God. I believe he's standing there for a couple of reasons. One is to pray for Stephen. Two is to applaud Stephen as he enters into heaven. Jesus Christ stands. Normally he's sitting. He stands for Stephen because he's like, look at this guy. Look at what he's doing for me. We think about Wang Yi. Uh, He's a Chinese pastor. He was in prison in 2018 for his faith. Still in jail. He's about halfway through his sentence. We've got some recent news about him. I I can't share online here, but he's still standing firm standing strong for his faith. I believe the Lord is so energized by Wang Yi. He's so energized by you when you take a stand in your school, when you take a stand at your company, when you take a stand in your family. When you stand for him, God is energized by that. He's a God who is present when we are greatly outnumbered. He is near. He's also a God who answers simple prayers of faith. That's the third thing. A God who answers simple prayers of faith. So fundamentally, you could say this is a story about prayer. You have 
the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah praying to their God, and you have Elijah praying to our God, and you have a contest of which God answers prayer. When the prophets of Baal pray, they, they just pray, pray, pray. And they say all the words, every word they can think of, and every type of tone of voice and everything. No answers. Nothing. The sound of silence again is deafening in the story. No answer to prayer. Why? Because there's no God there. You're praying to nothing. At the end of the day, when you have idols in your life that you're serving in your, your deepest hour, your, your, your deepest hour of need, that dark night of the soul, if you pray to that idol, whatever it is that you're worshiping, whatever you're looking to to find security or affirmation or power or control, you will find nothing. You will find deafening silence. That God can do nothing for you because you made it up for yourself and you are at the end. You have nothing left. If you pray to an idol in your moment of greatest need, you will find a deafening sound of silence. You will. But if you pray to the God of Israel, you pray to the one true God like Elijah did, you will find a God who answers. Our God is the only God. He's the only true God. He's the only real God. He's the only God who answers prayer. He's a God who answers prayer. And look at this prayer. His prayer is not eloquent. It's not long-winded. He doesn't use any special alliteration. He doesn't weave all of redemptive history together in his prayer. He just prays a simple prayer. Jesus talks about this. He's like, you're not going to be heard because of your many words. He's talking about the Pharisees. You think God cares that you can write poetry while you pray? He doesn't care. He already wrote poetry. He's good. He just wants you to simply trust him and pray. And he answers prayers like that. Our God is the only God who answers prayer. And when you are in your darkest hour, when you are at the end, or when you're not, wherever you are, he's a God who answers. He's a God who is with you. He's the only God who can be with you on the inside when everything is caving on the outside. Fourth, and finally, he's a God who rains down both grace and and justice. So verse 30, Elijah invites all the people to come near. This is for everybody. God is the answer. His grace is available to all. He calls everybody to the altar. He says, come and see God. Verse 30 continues, he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. This is symbolic of the house of Israel. He's rebuilding Israel in a sense, metaphorically, as he brings this altar before the Lord. Verse 31, he takes 12 stones corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel to whom the Lord had said, Israel shall be your name. Elijah is reminding them of the God who called them to himself as a nation. He goes on, verse 33, he prepares a burnt offering on the altar. You need to understand that the altar has has a sacrifice or an oblation on it. It is a, an offering to the Lord. That's what's happening here. It's an offering to the Lord. What is God going to do with this offering? It's a moment of worship. If you go down to verse 38, after Elijah prays, it says, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So I want you to think about that, not just the power but the precision of the power. You have 
fire, this is obviously supernatural fire, falling from the sky and so, so precise that it would have such power in one little spot, and yet not everyone else is consumed. This is the precise power of God. When the supernatural power of God falls into our lives and falls into our hearts, it's precise. He hits us in our hearts where we really are. And what do the people say now? It's not silence this time. They fall on their faces and they say a simple confession. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah had prayed that God would turn their hearts back. That was his prayer. Lord, I'm doing this because I want you to turn the hearts back of your people. And so they fall on their faces and God turns some of their hearts back. So let's dwell on this. Let's dwell on the kindness of God here. For years, centuries, his people had been walking away from him. So long. No one but Elijah standing for him. And yet God is still compassionate and he's full of grace. There's still an opportunity for forgiveness. I think about this in my own heart, in my own life. There's so often times where I'm like, man, I just feel like even though God's grace, I know it's theologically true. For me personally and how much I struggle in different areas of my life, I can't believe that God would be continually inexhaustible in his forgiveness for me. And yet he is. He's a God who loves to turn, loves to turn the heart, loves to turn us back to his grace. He's so merciful that anyone who turns to him, any of these people on Mount Carmel and anyone here today, anyone who turns to him in response to his grace will be forgiven. That's all. That is, that is the end of the story. You're forgiven. A simple prayer. You don't have to do anything for it. In fact, you can't do anything that would justify you being offered such grace. So the first way to respond here this morning is you need to receive God's grace. You can receive God's grace this morning. I encourage you to receive God's grace. If you've been limping between two opinions about God, and listen, we all have moments like that. We all have idols in our lives, little idols that we nurse and we care for, hoping that a little bit of that can help us as well. God is gracious and he's calling you to turn from that, and there's grace for you if you feel like you've been limping around between two opinions. So grace is the first aspect of this fire that falls from heaven. But the other aspect of this fire that falls from heaven is a, it's a fire of justice. Because for those who will not turn, those who will not respond to the free offering of God's grace that is totally undeserved, that is available to anyone, there is this fire of God's justice that falls. And and for those who do not repent, when they see this obvious act of God's power, we see the final verse in verse 40, that these prophets are led down to the bottom of the valley, to the bottom of the valley, to the brook, and they're slaughtered there. And you're like, wow, what do I do with that? Well, this is really interesting. I believe this story is a foreshadowing of the end, the ultimate end of time. Why do I think that? Because this valley, the valley of Jezreel, there's a city. It's called the city of Megiddo. That city would later, the, the name of this valley would change to the valley of Armageddon. This valley is the most contested piece of real estate in the world. 
Nations and kings have fought and bled over the valley of Armageddon. And Revelation tells us that in the end, there will be a great battle between God and anyone who opposes God. And anyone who is with God will, re- will receive grace. They will win. Anyone who is not with God, anyone who will not respond to his gift of grace, will receive God's justice. Now, I want you to know this. There is no reason why in that valley you would face God's justice unless your heart is just hard to the, to the free offering of God's grace. Because south of Mount Carmel, there was another mountain, Calvary, where Jesus Christ came. He came, and he came a little bit different from Elijah as a prophet. He came as a prophet who was even weaker, even weaker. The one who would stand alone, who would, who would hang alone on the cross for our sins. Against all odds, the Son of God would come and become incarnate. He would face all of the misery of this life, and he would die on a cross. Why did he die? Because on the cross, the fire of God fell on Jesus Christ. The wrath of God against sin fell on Jesus Christ. Jesus stood in our place. He became the ultimate sacrifice for us. So that if we will receive his grace in being the sacrifice for us, this punishment for sin for us, we will never face a battle like that where God will turn aside from us. We will never, in our valley of Armageddon, or in the final battle, we will win. We will be with Christ. Our sins will be forgiven. You can receive God's grace. But if you will not receive his grace, if you will stand alone and you will not receive what Christ has done for you on the cross, then you will stand on your own before God. Your sin You will stand before God on your own. All of your sin will be displayed before him. And you will not be able to stand because you're not perfect. And neither am I. There's only at the end of the day, the fire falls and there's two aspects to the fire. You can receive God's grace or you can receive God's justice. Listen, there's no reason for you to ever receive God's justice because Christ has received it for you. So I encourage you today, if you've never received this free gift of God's grace, I encourage you to receive it. You can do that like Elijah did by praying a simple prayer. God, I trust you. I believe that you are the sacrifice for my sin and I accept your payment for my sin. Please give me your grace. I don't want to receive your justice that I truly deserve and you'll be saved. That can be for you. And if you find yourself in here as a Christian, you're like, you know what? I believe that's true. I believe that's the true gospel. But I've been limping around between two different opinions. You can turn your heart back to Christ now. You can look upon him, that sacrifice on the cross. You can look to God, the true God of Israel, and say, Lord, forgive me. Turn my heart back to you. Help me wholeheartedly follow you and not limp around following other gods. When we have these moments where we're limping between two opinions, we need a fresh encounter with the living God. Will you encounter him today? Will you trust him today? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we cannot fathom how great you are. Lord, your character inspires us and we feel like we're, you've met us on the doorstep of our lives and we're shaken by how great you are and how unworthy we are of you. And Lord God, I thank you that you love us. 
that you are not put out by us, that you're not done with us, but you love and you continue to pursue. You continue to fight for your own glory in our lives so that we don't turn aside to worthless worthless idols. So Lord, I pray for every heart here. I pray that we would turn to you, whether that's the first time or the thousandth time, would we turn to you, Lord God, We thank you for the gospel, that you love us. In Jesus' name.